Let's read Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 together this morning. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. May the Lord be honored by the reading of his word. You may be seated. To provide you a little bit of context, especially for those of you who, you know, don't um, attend regularly or, or this is your first Sunday here, uh, our lead pastor, Pastor Scott, is on a sabbatical for June and July, taking some time away to, to study and grow, and we're looking forward to how God will bless him and his family and our church through that time. And about a year and a half ago, uh, we, we hosted a biblical counseling conference here at our church, and the team that came to teach us impressed upon the pastoral leadership to consider uh, more frequently uh, designing some teaching from the pulpit toward the family. And so the seed was planted then, it was put on our uh, preaching radar, so to speak, and uh, with, with me being a, a pastor that serves here as uh, youth and family, and Pastor Scott being away, we thought this would be a good opportunity to explore that a little bit. And so uh, for this week and the next three, uh, we'll be uh, studying Romans 12 together and asking the question, what are the characteristics of a transformed family? And Romans 12 speaks specifically to what a transformed life looks like, a life that's been changed by Christ. And the reason I selected Romans 12 uh, is, you know, often, in, whether it's in Bible classes or Sunday school classes, what I encourage uh, parents and children alike to consider is that there are some passages that, for obvious reasons and, and for some, you know, kind of mysterious reasons, tend to be confined to a certain category of living. And so an example of that would be like 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, the beginning of which is often referred to as the love passage, is, is a beautiful passage, <clears throat> often read and, and, and spotlighted at weddings. And so there's kind of this connotation with 1 Corinthians 13 that, uh, you know, it's kind of love and marriage. But the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is not specifically marriage. It certainly applies to marriage. Uh, but the greater context of that passage is, is about how that love ought to be displayed within the body of Christ. Uh, so likewise, maybe for more obvious reasons, you have passages like Ephesians 6 that uh, discuss very specifically uh, an address to uh, husbands, an address to wives, addresses parents and children. And so we tend to think of those passages when we hear we're going to be studying and talking about the, the family. My encouragement is to try to read God's word in acknowledging that it addresses all of it, all areas of life, all the time. And so 1 Corinthians 13 is very obviously applicable to the body of Christ, but also fits comfortably within the context of marriage and family. Uh, it should describe the kind of relationships you have with your coworkers. Uh, and Romans 12 is a passage that deals with the transformed life. And rather than look at it solely through the prism of an individual context, I'm going to endeavor to place it within the context of a family. Having said that, if you're here 
whether you're visiting or you've been here for quite some time, it, you know, I want to encourage you not to conclude that this isn't for you if you are not married or you don't have children or those kinds of things. All of us were born into some kind of family context. And some of our family contexts have changed since that time. And then on top of that, for those of us gathered in this room today who have uh, been redeemed by Christ, brought into the family of God, we are in a family context when we gather in this room and when we interact with each other uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. So the applications, my challenge is to, is to try to bring them within the context of the, of the biological family. But the principles that we'll be covering are applicable to every single person in this room. And so my encouragement to you is to, is to look for those and, he, and listen for those and apply them in whatever your contexts might be. If we're going to think about the topic of transformation, I thought to begin our time together, I would take us all back to elementary school and I'd like to read you a book. So I'm going to take a seat here. This is a book called The Very Hungry Caterpillar by Eric Carle. Some of you are remembering things now. I'll even show it to you. In the light of the moon, a little egg lay on a leaf. One Sunday morning, the warm sun came up and pop! Out of the egg came a tiny and very hungry caterpillar. He started to look for some food. On Monday, he ate through one apple, but he was still hungry. On Tuesday, he ate through two pears, but he was still hungry. On Wednesday, he ate through three plums, but he was still hungry. On Thursday, he ate through four strawberries, but was still hungry. On Friday, he ate through five oranges, but he was still hungry. On Saturday, he ate through one piece of chocolate cake, one ice cream cone, one pickle, one slice of Swiss cheese, one slice of salami, one lollipop, one piece of cherry pie, one sausage, one cupcake, and one slice of watermelon. That night, he had a stomach ache. <laughs> the next day was Sunday again. The caterpillar ate through one nice green leaf, and after that, he felt much better. Now, he wasn't hungry anymore, and he wasn't a little caterpillar anymore. He was a big, fat caterpillar. He built a small house called a cocoon around himself. He stayed inside for more than two weeks. Then he nibbled a hole in the cocoon, pushed his way out, and he was a beautiful butterfly. When we think of transformation, that's often the image that comes to our mind. The beauty, intelligence, of God's creation is illustrated in the passage that we're going to begin studying together this week, and specifically in these first two verses. And that connection will become hopefully very clear 
as we go through our time together. As I mentioned earlier, the question that we're going to be dealing with over the next four weeks is what are the characteristics of a transformed family? In other words, if our homes were filled by people who have been transformed by Christ, what then would that house full of people look like? What would that family look like? And based on the reading of these first two verses, I would suggest that a transformed family lives sacrificially. If we look again at verse 1 in Romans chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. One of the most helpful things one can do when studying God's word is to look at the words themselves. I, I, I'm someone who I really enjoy etymology. I like knowing where words come from and how they originated and what they used to mean versus what they mean now. And when you go to the original languages of scripture, in this case, the Greek, there's some illuminating things that happen when you ask those kinds of questions. For instance, the word appeal here really gives a sense that he's begging or pleading with the body of Christ, with the Christians he's writing to, to do something. Please, I beg you to do what? He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That word present means to yield. When you're out on the road and you approach a yield sign, you may choose to ignore it, but the concept is that if there is an oncoming car adjacent to you, right, or coming towards you, and you approach that yield sign, you are to stop and grant them the right of way. It's a very similar concept in this passage. A person who's been transformed by Christ quite literally yields over their life to Christ, gives him the right of way with their life. Day to day, moment to moment, it is a living sacrifice. And he says in the ESV, it's rendered, this is your spiritual worship. I've always been uh, interested in how the various translations uh, render the original language there. If you look at the original words, spiritual worship uh, comes from the Greek word logikos, where we get the word logic. What Paul's saying is that living your life this way, yielding your life to Christ as Lord, granting him the right of way over your life, living as a sacrifice to him is a rational, intelligent, logical way to serve him in light of what he's done for you which is something that Paul explains in chapters 1 to 11 of Romans. He lays all this beautiful doctrinal theological groundwork of what God has done for you through Christ. And in light of all of that, the most logical, reasonable thing to do, the most intelligent thing to do, is to yield your life to him. To just hand it over. So rather than setting our minds aside in this process... It's the most useful way to employ them, the most logical way to do so.
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Same author, different audience, same concept. A family that lives sacrificially does so by recognizing their bodies are not their own. Or probably more closely to the concept, they realize their lives are not their own. Pastor Kyle Uteman once said on this subject that Jesus bought you with his own blood. He has every right to tell you how to live your life. It's the difference between settling for Jesus as Savior or following him as Lord. Now, he certainly came to do one, but it's not his intent to settle for that. He certainly came to seek and save the lost, but he ultimately came to be our Lord, to run our life. His agenda becomes our own agenda. His plan becomes our plan. So when it comes to our bodies, then quite specifically, we don't get to say whatever we'd like to say. We don't get to do whatever we'd like to do. We don't get to wear whatever we'd like to wear. We don't get to eat or drink whatever we'd like to drink. He decides these things. He teaches us how to speak, how to act, how to dress, how to drink, how to eat, how to fellowship, how to love how to correct, how to discipline, how to parent. He tells us how to do these things, not ourselves. And honestly, I think we, we do a lot of damage, particularly with young people, when we don't introduce them to this concept early. It's not a matter of simply receiving Jesus as Savior and no longer going to hell. What you're doing is giving your life over to him to now be in charge. You aren't your own. That's a decision. That's a, that's a, that's a thought. Or a, let's, let's put it this way. That's a conclusion that one ought to come to soberly, thoughtfully, not in haste, not out of pressure, not for some worldly reward or status. And so when we have conversations in our families about what we're going to do with our time or, or how we're going to relate to certain people or how we're going to relate to each other when we're at the mall, what, what clothes we're going to buy and wear, uh, what, what meals we're going to partake in, all these things are informed by God's word. All of them. And we are to simply obey. Galatians chapter 3 Verses 13 and 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What a wonderful thing that has been done through Christ to be redeemed, to be purchased back. You know, we... 
it's a bit of a self-deception, right? To, to think that we come into this world free and have this choice to enslave ourselves to Christ. We come into this world in slavery to begin with. It's just to a far different master. And the choice that we're given through this wonderful work of Christ on the cross and raising again from the dead is that we can, we can receive him as our master, one whose yoke is easy and burden is light. One who loves us and wants the best for us. Far different than the master we once had. Ephesians chapter 2, I invite you to turn there with me. I'd like to read verses 1 to 10. Too much to put on the screen. Just a few pages down from the book of Romans. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. He starts by saying this, and, and let me just... For, this, for the sake of acknowledging that there might be some amongst us this morning who do not know Christ as Lord. This passage, quite honestly, describes you today. Describes what is true about you as he begins. For those of us who have come to Christ, who follow him as Lord... The passage then begins to describe us. And what I mean is this very first sentence. Speaking to a Christian audience, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. For those of us who have come to Christ, who follow him as Lord, that was once us. But if you're here this morning and, and that has not occurred in your life as gently as possible, but yet truthfully, I want to suggest to you that what, what, what God's word is saying is you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But the good news is you don't have to stay there. He goes on to say, verse 3, among whom this... The, these sons of disobedience, he's among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now here's the good news. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you see it? Why have we been changed? Why have we been redeemed? Why have we been transformed? Not for our own plans. It's to do good works that God has planned for us to do long ago. We're invited into his story. We don't invite him into ours. And we play the role he gives us as he is the storyteller. Referencing Pastor Eidelman again, in his book, Not a Fan, he says this, Fans don't mind him doing a little touch-up work, but Jesus wants complete renovation. Fans come 
to Jesus thinking tune-up, but Jesus is thinking overhaul. Fans think a little makeup is fine, but Jesus is thinking makeover. Fans think a little decorating is required, but Jesus wants a complete remodel. Fans want Jesus to inspire them, but Jesus wants to interfere with their lives. Later on, he says this, The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians, but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. It's a moment to ask ourselves, as individuals and as families, are we fans of Jesus or followers of Jesus? He's called us to be one, not the other. And honestly, there, there, there was a time, right, in our country where perhaps that statement was still ringing true. The idea that, that people might want to be identified with Jesus because of some of the benefits that might come along with it. But quite frankly, if there's one reason why I'm actually glad that God's seems to be orchestrating a time where his church is going to be tested in our culture. It's so that the fans can be identified and the followers can be strengthened to do the work they've been called to do. The fan won't stick around when the tough time comes. When there's an actual cost to their faith, the follower will gladly pay it. And this is important. I may have said this before, but it continues, I believe, to be very true and very critical. When we think of our children and grandchildren, I find one of the most damaging things that parents can do with their children is to try to help them avoid ever having to pay a cost for their faith. In other words, they might come home and say, uh, the boss won't let me take Sundays off so that I can go to church. If I, if, I, if, I, if I insist on taking Sundays off, I'll lose the job. Oh, well, that's okay. We'll, we'll work it out. We don't want you to lose the job. Well, wait, what have we just done? We've just robbed them of an opportunity to pay a price for their faith. And in so doing, delayed for them recognizing whether their faith is real or fake. You know, as long as following Christ is easy, a fake faith mimics a real one. Only when the test comes and a price must be paid are we able to distinguish the difference. Are we willing to lose a job? Are we willing to sit the bench because we missed the game? Are we willing to pay real-world costs for saying there's one most important thing in my life, and that's Jesus? That's what we're talking about here. Our lives are not our own. He goes on, and in the beginning of verse 2, he says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I believe a family lives sacrificially by first recognizing their bodies are not their own, and second, resisting being conformed to the world. How do we do that? By renewing our mind through the transformative word of God. What does he mean by world? He means this present age. No matter what time we find ourselves living in, there is a world that we'll be surrounded by and we are not to conform to it. Its standards, its way of living. 
Uh, more specifically, its value system. The value system of a believer who's truly been transformed by Christ will be markedly different than the value system of the world. And what does it mean to be transformed? The Greek word for this is metamorpho, where we get the word metamorphosis, which is what the story was all about. And as different as that butterfly looked from his caterpillar form, so too a Christian ought to look when compared to his pre-Jesus form. So too ought a family be distinct in its transformed state than what it might have looked like without Christ in the calculation. 1 John chapter 2 says this in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that no man can have two masters. If he tries, he'll hate the one and love the other. It's not going to work. There can only be one most important thing. Only one master in any given moment that's governing the choices we're making in that moment. Only one. The truth about our God is this. He does not share power, rule. It's his own. By the very nature of who he is. And so he will have all of us. He will not share us with a false God. And anything, other, anything else we might choose to serve would be exactly that. It would be an idol that we've made for ourselves. Often constructed out of things that might be good. But of course you've heard this said, once a good thing becomes a ruling thing, it has become an idol. A false god. We are not to love what the world has to offer, but love God. 1 Peter chapter 1 says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That is the standard. That is the goal. The prize for which we strive. A text I would commend to your reading on your own time is Colossians 3, 1 to 17. It's in your outline along with all the others I've cited, I'm citing today. It's a text that expounds of Colossians, which is what does it look like for someone to walk worthy of the calling of Christ in their life. I would encourage you to read through that and consider where you see or don't see those characteristics demonstrated in your own, in your own life, in your own families. In the book, From Tablet to Table by Leonard Sweet, in a section where he talks about the family table, the, the whole book has a main idea of this concept, the family table, which basically he describes as regular times when the family is gathered and, and not rushed or distracted. It's been an interesting read. I have not yet finished it, but I've already been challenged by it, and it has been very thought-provoking, and I want to share a portion of it with you. On the subject of the family table, he says this, an untabled faith is an unstable faith. 
A neglect of the table in our churches is echoed in our families and our communities. In his book, Cooked, Michael Pollan shows that meals eaten out are almost always less healthy than foods cooked in. Homemade foods generally have lower fat, salt, and caloric content, and yet we are eating out more and more, eating in less and less. We eat one in every five meals in our car. One in four of us eat at least one fast food meal every single day. U.S. households spend roughly the same amount per week on fast food as on groceries. Sixty years ago, the average dinner time was 90 minutes. I'm going to say this again. Sixty years ago, the average dinner time was 90 minutes. Today, it is less than 12. And that's when we do eat dinner together, which is less and less frequently. The majority of U.S. families report eating a single meal together. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. A single meal together less than five days a week. And even then, our meals together are mostly in front of the TV or some other distraction. He goes on to say this. No wonder the average parent spends only 38 and a half minutes per week in meaningful conversation with their children. We are losing the table. Consider this. Later on in this chapter, some research was done that concluded the following. This is not a Christian research firm, but this is what they concluded. The number one factor for parents raising kids who are drug-free, healthy, and intelligent, the number one shaper of vocabulary in younger children, even more than any other family event, the number one predictor of future academic success for elementary-age children, one of the best safeguards against childhood obesity, the best prescription to prevent eating disorders among adolescent girls, the variable most associated with lower incidence of depressive and suicidal thoughts among 11 to 18 year olds, frequent family dinner. It was the one common thread. He goes on to say this, if you want kids with fewer emotional and behavioral problems, greater emotional well-being, more trusting and helpful behavior toward others, and higher life satisfaction, then you simply need more frequent family dinners. Why do I bring this up? I'm, going, I'm suggesting to you one of the most clear ways today in the United States to resist being conformed to the world to start looking different than everywhere else and everyone else is to reclaim the table in your home. Make it mean something again. Look, there are times in our own family, I could tell you when, when our life is getting a little out of sorts, usually a good indication of that is that our family table has become a dumping ground for things no one wants to put away. And so when we start clearing the table and reclaiming that space, in a very real way, we're also simultaneously doing surgery on our schedules to figure out what's going on. And can I take you to a book or chapter in Scripture that tells you thou shalt have frequent family dinners or meals together? No, I cannot. But I can tell you this. For thousands of years, this is what God's people did. And only until recently have we decided to do something different. Now answer this question. Are we better off? Are our families 
stronger and more united? Are they healthier than they ever have been before? Is the world's value system working? We decide in order to do everything, we divide and conquer. We eat and run. We do everything in haste. And then we wonder why our children and grandchildren are exhibiting the kinds of problems and behaviors that they are. Reclaim the table in your home, families. Or maybe claim it for the first time. Make it a non-negotiable. Everyone's going to be there. I'm convinced that God will bless that commitment. If when you gather around that table, he's the reason why. Thirdly, a family lives sacrificially by revealing the goodness of God's will. In the second half of verse 2, he says this, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, it's true. In first reading, it does seem, and I think this would be an accurate statement, that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. It is. Agreed. But there's more happening here in this text. What Paul's suggesting is that a transformed life will reveal to the person living it and to those watching it that God's will is good. In other words, if you commit to this path, if you would follow Christ as Lord, if you would submit to the transformation work that he seeks to do in your life, you will find that his will for you is good. And everyone watching will conclude the same. Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they'll glorify your Father in heaven. This is what the light looks like. And it's good. Families, you have neighbors living right next to you that need to be welcomed into the transformative work of Jesus Christ. And their best way of doing that might be watching how your family is living. What are you revealing to them about the will of God? What are you revealing to them about his character and his wishes for his people? By the way, one of the best ways to minister to them is around your table. You can invite them into these truths as you break bread with them. Just a few pages back in Romans, Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30, speaks to this, what, what might be coming into some of our minds right now is, my goodness, you talk, we understand now, right? I mean, this would be... So, Putting these things into practice might be some kind of total makeover of our family. And it's only week one. Oh, my goodness. This is hard work. It will require much. I'd like God's word to encourage you. Romans 8, starting in verse 26, Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Christian, do you feel weak when you think about the task God has called you to do? Join the crowd. But that's where Jesus does his best work. And the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He says, for we, don't, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Have you ever felt that? 
But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Number one, the Spirit enables you to do the will of God. You cannot do it in your own strength. Own it. Own the weakness. Own the dependency on Christ. Embrace the need for the Holy Spirit to work. And second, when we consider this idea of the will of God, referenced in these passages, first and foremost in our main text this morning, that you may discern what is the will of God. Have you ever struggled with that? The will of God? What Paul's not talking about is the mysterious sovereign will of God that we virtually have no access to. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. But the will of God he's speaking to here is something I'm in agreement with Pastor John Piper on. That the goal of this verse is not ferreting out the secret will of God that he plans to do, but discerning the revealed will of God that we ought to do. That's what this is about. A transformed life is demonstrated by a person who is discerning the will of God by getting into his revealed word. His will for you, brothers and sisters, is right here. It's right here. And our job is to obey it. Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's will for you. That, you would, that your love would abound with knowledge and discernment. That there'd be purity and blamelessness in Christ, the fruit of his righteousness filling your life. To the glory and praise of God. Hebrews chapter 5. Paul says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Constant practice. Again, just anecdotally, I see great effort in many families when it comes to extracurricular activities, all the practices, all the, all the workouts, all the commitments, all the haste and rush and commitment to, to, you know, to keep those commitments, all the energy being poured into that. And I ask this, is the same or greater energy being poured into our children and grandchildren's devotion to God? Are we as dedicated 
to training them and having personal devotional time with God as we are getting them to their sports practices. As much as we can only serve one master, we can only have one ultimate goal and dream for our children. Only one. And do what, what do we ultimately want for our children? Is that we want them to love and live for God? Or something else? Where is our effort being applied? Ultimately here what we're talking about is not wasting the life God has given us to live. And on that note, I'm going to do something a little rare and yield the balance of my time to Pastor John Piper, who 23 years ago gave a sermon, which I'll only show you a clip of. Don't sweat. But 23 years later, this sermon has, continues to leave an impact on generations. And I'm not entirely sure Pastor Piper intended for that to happen. But because of his faithful work to the Word of God, it did. And so I want you to listen to him as he speaks to this crowd of mostly young people and what, what, what his thoughts are based on his knowledge of God's Word as it relates to not wasting this life we've been given. You don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. People that make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ and you don't have to have a high EQ. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. Which is why anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference because it isn't you it's what you're gripped with but one of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference all you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, a nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old healthy, 
Have a fun retirement. Die easy. No hell. And that's all you want. And you don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity. And that's a tragedy in the making. That is a tragedy in the making. About three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and then in retirement, partnering up with Ruby, also pushing 80, and going from village to village in Cameroon. And the brakes give way, over a cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost, a, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick, in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I asked? It is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. I've got a little article here from Reader's Digest. You don't read Reader's Digest, I know that. But there is a generation who does. This is a tragedy. Title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early, February 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. 
the American dream. A nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. God, look at my boat, God. Well, not for Ruby and not for Laura. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. So what are the characteristics of a transformed family? To state it concisely, a transformed family lives sacrificially by recognizing their bodies are not their own, resisting being conformed to the world, and revealing the goodness of God's will. It's our first step. Our first step in building families that leave behind a multi-generational vision and legacy of faithfulness to God And it's a task that we've been equipped by the Spirit to do. I'd like to close our time by saying a blessing over you from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be dismissed.